This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care, and we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com wonder. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Greetings. I am Nathan Moore, your host on the New Books Network. Today, we will be interviewing Dr. Paul Gowder about his newest publication out of Cambridge University Press titled The Networked Leviathan for Democratic Platforms. Dr. Gowder, can you provide a brief overview of The Networked Leviathan for Democratic Platforms and give us its central themes? Sure thing. So this book, actually, you know, so one interesting way to approach this would be to talk about its history. Um, so this book came out of the fact that from roughly 2018 to 2019, I was consulting with the company then known as Facebook on their democracy protection teams and then on their um on their effort to create what's now known as the Oversight Board. And while I was there, I learned really an astonishing amount about sort of the real-world incentives that these gigantic internet platforms face. And so what the Network Leviathan tries to do is to combine the practical knowledge that I've gained about how these companies actually work with the insights of political science and constitutional design to try to figure out, number one, why the governance efforts that these companies are really being asked to do to prevent things like, you know, COVID vaccine misinformation, democratic subversion, and similar social ills are actually working very poorly. You know, what's going wrong, given that for many of these situations, their incentives are aligned with the interests of the rest of us. And with some insights on what's going wrong, try to propose concrete institutional solutions 
to improve matters. And ultimately, the book comes down on recommending, as I say in the subtitle, democratic platforms. That is, it comes down on recommending a global grassroots dispersed system of participatory governance layered on top of existing corporate and government structures that has the capacity to improve the ways that these companies actually control human behavior through their platforms. What motivated you, Dr. Gowder, to explore the concept of the network Leviathan in the context of democratic platforms? So, Obviously, I think that, you know, we all know that there's a lot of terrible stuff happening over the internet. Um, for those of us in the wealthier democracies, this has mostly cashed out in terms of damage to elections. Of course, you know, a lot of people attribute Donald Trump's 2016 victory in part to misinformation distributed over platforms like Facebook. Um, many people also attribute the Brexit referendum in the UK, at least in part, to similar misinformation. Um, in the United States in particular, and I believe in other countries as well, medical misinformation is also quite rampant over many of these platforms, but in less developed, less um, stable democracies, matters are even worse. And so if we think about the most infamous example, the Myanmar genocide of the Rohingya people has in large part I won't say due to Facebook, because, of course, the underlying political incentives were the same. I mean, obviously, the military was trying to do an ethnic cleansing, and Facebook just happened to be conveniently there. But certainly, Facebook's failures, you know, it's pretty much universally accepted, drastically exacerbated this genocide. And so there's this, like, clear overwhelming need to figure out, okay, like, given the, again, the companies are working really hard on this. Like, all of these companies, with the possible exception of Twitter nowadays that Elon Musk is in charge, are just spending mind-blowing amounts of money on things like content moderation to try to bring it about that things like the Myanmar genocide don't happen again. But as far as anybody can tell, it's not terribly effective. And so it's really quite urgent to figure out why. How would we say the network Leviathan reshapes traditional notions of democratic governance in the digital age? Yeah, that's a wonderful question. So here's the thing. We have two sort of vectors right now. For what we're thinking about when we think about like governing human behavior on the internet, right? So two vectors of influence. Vector of influence number one, traditional political states, the United States, Thailand, the Philippines, South Korea, Britain, France. The problem with relying on traditional states to regulate conduct on the internet is twofold. Number one, 
as we've known for many, many years, so much of this conduct is dispersed that in a lot of ways it defies traditional regulatory efforts. You know, classic example, um, you know, it turns out, and there's uh, you know, a bunch of press reports on this, there are essentially some towns in Macedonia that at least for a period, a large part of their economy was based on internet scams, primarily targeting countries like the U.S., you know, it turns out that if you're a competent English speaker and you work in a country with a relatively low cost of living, you can make a pretty good living ripping off clueless Americans in a variety of ways. But of course, it's quite difficult to extend U.S. jurisdiction to those countries. The other real problem with governments in the traditional sense being the sources of governance for behavior over internet platforms is, as we know, many of them, including many of the most powerful ones, have at best mixed motivations, at worst outright malicious, malicious motivations. So consider the right in the United States. You know, at the moment, one of the main ideas of the right in terms of like what they do when they get political power anywhere is they try to regulate platforms in ways that advantage their own side. You know, in the States, they've been passing these anti-political censorship laws like in Florida and Texas that essentially amount to efforts to keep the companies from kicking people like Alex Jones and other misinformation purveyors off of their platforms. Um, in other countries, again, you know, countries like India under the Modi regime, there are even more troubling efforts to subvert content moderation functions in companies in the interests of authoritarian or quasi-authoritarian parties. So governments aren't a reasonably well-situated regulator right now. Well, what about the companies themselves? Well, again, the companies themselves, I think there's a few problems, right? Number one problem is that the companies themselves also have mixed motives. Um, they have mixed motives because, of course, they both have profit interests in some of the features, particularly in what's known as engaging content, in content that, you know, tends to spread widely and get a lot of attention, much of which is, much of which is also socially harmful. And number two is they're distinctly vulnerable to pressure, again, from authoritarian states. And so these features really lead to the core recommendation, which, as I said, is about grassroots global democracy. And that's how, you know, the idea of the book is really meant to re-envision the idea of democracy for the Internet age is instead of saying, OK, democracy has to go through states, we can say that actually it's possible for us to create disaggregated institutions that both sit within in part and in part transcend national boundaries 
and allow ordinary groups of people to directly exercise authority over the communication and transaction platforms that have been so significant in their lives in the last few decades. To say a little bit more about how that would work. You know, so imagine that you're a citizen of Thailand. And I, I mentioned Thailand because it provides a really interesting case for thinking about how democracy in a grassroots kind of sense can help with some of these regulatory decisions that right now we're relying on a kind of weird interplay between governments and companies to decide upon. So Thailand has this very famous law that essentially prohibits certain kinds of criticism or disrespect to the king. And there are two things that you might think about this law, and I would say both of these are really valid, right? The first thing you might think about the law is, okay, you know, cultural diversity, like the king of Thailand is a significant figure in Thai culture, and if the people of Thailand want to enforce a law, including a law on internet communication from people in Thailand, saying you can't talk smack about the king, that's something they have a right to do and companies should enforce it. A second thing that you might say is, hey, wait a minute, we're a little bit suspicious that this kind of law might actually be used and in fact has been used for political repression, that criticizing the king could easily be criticizing the people who are currently in power, and it also runs significantly contrary to the values that many of the companies that are creating these products are trying to put forward in the world, and so maybe they shouldn't help the Thai government enforce this law by removing content that criticizes the king from their platforms. How do we decide between those two views? And so what I say is, suppose that we convened something like a standing jury composed mostly of Thai people, but not entirely, because, you know, cultural diversity is also something that features on these platforms where people from many different cultures interact with one another and rules enforced in one context interact with rules on another. And so suppose that we had a Thai-dominated, but not exclusively Thai, standing jury of ordinary people that had the capacity to deliberate. Okay, the Thai government wants to ask, you know, YouTube to remove this video doing what looks like criticizing the monarchy. Is this a fair application of the law? Do we want the companies to apply the law to us in this way? And I contend that that sort of ordinary interaction between citizens in a deliberative context, making these decisions instead of governments and instead of companies, has the capacity to generate better decisions, to generate decisions that reflect better knowledge about the actual local conditions that people are experiencing across the world, as well as to generate decisions that are not corrupted 
by the mixed incentives that both governments and companies are facing. In what ways then do you argue for the preservation of democratic values in the face of evolving digital governance? Yeah, great question. So I think that when we talk about democratic values, right, there's a lot of different things we could mean. So one idea is self-determination, right? Like if we think about the sort of fundamental proposition of democracy as a normative matter, it's, hey, people ought to have the capacity to rule themselves rather than be ruled by others. But in the digital era, that notion is confounded by the fact that even more than in the pre-digital era, and it was already pretty problematic in the pre-digital era, like the boundaries between what counts as self-governance for whom, you know, what, how do we bound populations and polities gets just deeply complicated, right? So again, think about like election subversion. So, you know, in 2016, right, we can pretty easily come to the judgment that the Russians probably ought not to have been interfering in elections across the world in ways that we know they were because, you know, we have intelligence-linked companies in Russia that have been exposed many times since then. Okay, that's an easy problem. But what about harder problems? Like, what about cross-national political dialogue? You know, to what extent does somebody who's not part of an intelligence agency in one country have a right to participate discursively in the politics of others? And right now, the people who are making that decision are sitting in places like Menlo Park and San Francisco and Cupertino and Mountain View, right? They're not sitting in the countries that are actually affected by this kind of cross-national political interchange, with the exception of the United States and a small handful of other very, very rich, very, you know, relatively stable, I don't know if the U.S. is stable anymore, countries. And... So there's a kind of second-order self-determination play in that the decisions about even what the political boundaries are for who gets to be included in a different kind of political action are themselves not being made in a democratic way. And so one reason to think about global democracy designed in a kind of conscious way to create, as I said, something like standing citizen juries or councils that have a majority of people from a particular geography, but it's not exclusive, is because it permits an alternative forum potentially to start making these kinds of second-order decisions about who actually has a right to participate in these massive global networked platforms in democratic decisions that are also 
in some sense, local and tied to specific geographies. But I think there's a second democratic value that's even like closer to the core of the book, which is that another reason to understand democracy as a good form of government is because we think that it actually is welfare enhancing. And so I think, you know, I really spend a lot of time in the book thinking about some of the research in a field or sort of a research area that's become known as democratic knowledge. And, you know, really this democratic knowledge research tradition probably starts with folks like Condorcet. Right? So, you know, for the political scientists in the audience, you're, of course, familiar with the Condorcet jury theorem was the notion that, like, disaggregated Excuse me, not disaggregate. I would say the, the notion that like groups of people assuming a certain minimal level of competence tend to make better decisions simply in virtue of being a, in a group than they do differently. Um, the democratic knowledge field also incorporates, you know, scholars such as John Dewey and a number of more modern scholars. Um, some of the most famous examples include, you know, Josiah Ober at Stanford, um, you know, so on and so forth. So I think that this democratic knowledge field really helps us understand a lot of the problems that exist on the internet today. Because again, you know, when we think about centralized governors, one of the quintessential problems of centralized governors is that they're really incapable of aggregating knowledge from the peripheries. And so if you're sitting in Mountain View making decisions about what kind of content's allowed on YouTube, it's like shockingly difficult to understand local conditions somewhere like the Philippines. You just have like no context. You have no, you know, very few personnel in the Philippines. You don't have access to up-to-date information about what's going on. You don't have a really good way to understand people's values. And so a second distinctive democratic value that the book really focuses on is the capacity for thoughtfully designed participatory institutions to transmit knowledge between periphery and center in ways that allow better governance decisions to be made for the whole. What legal and regulatory frameworks does the book propose to address those challenges that you <clears throat> speak about in the network Leviathan. Yeah, so it turns out that, you know, in a lot of ways you could read the book as kind of utopian, right? So, you know, I argue again for this like massive system of dispersed institutions, like these, these sort of standing juries that I talk about in the model design are really things that would be created for essentially every country in the world. And so you might ask, like, how on earth do we get there? And it turns out there is actually a lot of leverage that governments have to try to build at least toward something like 
dispersed governance institutions for the internet age in ways that, you know, even if they didn't get all the way there right away, or even if the ultimate system turned out to be different from the ones that I was proposing, because of course, any like radical governance change, you can't just like cook it up in a philosopher's armchair. It's subject to real world negotiation. But there's actually a lot that existing governments can do to move the needle forward right now. So let me suggest a few things. So number one, on the subject of dispersed knowledge, as well as of shifting governance power to people who are better aligned with the public good than either companies or governments, we have to talk about the tech platform workplace. And particularly, we have to talk about the legions of offshored contract workers right now who are doing things like content moderation for all of the major companies. So let me tell you a story. A few years ago, at this point, yeah, like a couple years ago, there was a big news story, you know, Facebook is finally standing up an office in the Philippines. This really matters because Rodrigo Duterte, the president of the Philippines, had been using the platform to just like terribly abuse his political opponents. And so, you know, there was this like big splashy announcement. Facebook's finally going to have an office there so that people in the Philippines would have like direct information that they were transmitting to Menlo Park. And there was just going to be this capacity to like adapt to local situations and really like tackle the problem of political misconduct being carried out in the country over the platform. But here's the ridiculous thing about that announcement. Facebook had workers in the Philippines for a really long time before that big splashy announcement. Facebook had workers there, it's just that they didn't count them as workers because they were part of these legions of offshored content moderators. And so by permitting, and again, this is not just Facebook, you know, I say Facebook a lot because A, it's a company that I know pretty well, and B, because obviously they've really been at the leading edge in terms of all of these content moderation things. But this applies to all of the companies. Like they all have these offshore content moderators who are oftentimes in countries where there are real problems with communication going on over the platforms, but because they're treated as contractors, because they work for like these third-party companies, they have no real channels of communication between people on the ground and the people who are making the actual decision-making. And you know, unlike, for example, the engineers sitting in the fancy offices in places like Mountain View and Menlo Park who have real power that they've exercised to tell their companies, hey, actually, we think that what you're planning to do is wrong. We won't do it. Um, the people in these content moderation farms also have no real power in that sense. 
But that's something that governments can fix easily. And so one big, gigantic step toward democratizing platform governance would be for powerful governments like the United States and the European Union to enact labor regulations. Labor regulations requiring the companies to treat contractors like real employees. Treat contractors like real employees how? Well, a variety of ways, right? So one is give them something like consultative rights. Um, in some countries, there are laws already providing for workplace consultation rights in certain kinds of workplaces. France has a workplace consultation law, for example. You know, we have models where we could say, okay, offshore content moderators have certain kinds of rights to access, to communicate with, to not have too many layers of um, decision-making authority between the people who actually make company-level policy decisions and the people on, gr on the ground seeing how those decisions play out. I, I think that would be probably the most impactful short-term legal change in terms of improving how we actually govern content online. But there are a variety of others. Um, another big one that gets talked about a lot, again, particularly in the United States and Europe, is competition policy. And so it's really striking that one of the places where both the U.S. left and the U.S. right seem to come together is in so-called breakup big tech. Like, it's got to be the only thing that, that Elizabeth Warren and Josh Hawley agree on at all is that antitrust breakups should be used against big tech companies. I'm actually more skeptical about that. Um, it seems to me that there are certain kinds of economies of scale, particularly in, again, these sort of content moderation functions, as well as in the fact that mass market platforms have to have mass market advertisers and appeal to mass market users, which limits the extent to which they can just like turn into 4chan, essentially. Um, and so I'm not sure how, that I, how I feel about the sort of blunt antitrust breakup, but I do think that competition policy can be used, again, to drive reforms in many of these companies. And so I'll give you another example. Um, one big problem that a lot of companies have is that their internal management organization corrupts their incentives for doing well by the general public. You know, a couple of examples. Um, one from Facebook, notoriously, the so-called policy organization at Facebook, which is a sort of management track that, uh, well, I'll explain to you what it is, deal it deals with both lobbying governments and 
making rules for content on the platform. In other words, the like same, you know, organization within the company has both an incentive to please governments or to please particular legislators that might be loud and an incentive to, or theoretically a mission to try to serve the public good by doing things like banning Nazis. That's a really bad idea because it has made the company unusually vulnerable to, for example, the far right in the US. You know, there are reports in the press of a guy named Joel Kaplan, who was in charge of the policy structure at Facebook, essentially telling people who wanted to make rules to restrain like misinformation from the American far right. Well, no, I don't want Steve Bannon to scream at me. Right? Those are terrible incentives. Another example is a lot of companies, you know, Google is notorious for this, tie the capacity to communicate about like terrible things that have happened to you on your plat on the platform or by the platform sometimes in the case of like account suspensions to like customer service functions and revenue. And so if you like a subscriber, if you're like worth more revenue to many of these companies in a variety of ways, you have a much greater capacity to reach somebody and say, hey, something's gone terribly wrong with my experience on them. So both of these organizational defamations are ways that are sort of met places where ordinary law and regulation can intervene. Again, in order to make it possible for these companies to make better decisions by changing the kinds of knowledge and influence that flow into them. I'll give you one further third example that's about international law. A lot of people have argued for international human rights law to apply to these companies. Typically, what they tend to be arguing for is something about free expression. I actually think that that's a little misguided just because, you know, what free expression values are varies widely geographically. You know, different cultures have very different traditions of free expression. And I'm not sure there's a universal human rights version that we could really apply. But there's a principle in human rights law known as the responsibility to protect that essentially confers upon you know, entities that it covers, the obligation to try to intervene in certain kinds of serious human rights harms. And I think that the responsibility to protect as a legal framework is a really interesting idea to apply to these companies in light of the human rights harms to things like the right of self-determination in light of the actual genocide and a variety of other kinds of ethnic conflict that have been facilitated over these platforms. You know, it seems to me that, you know, we could actually, by treaty, subject these companies to the responsibility to protect as part of the international human rights regime, and in doing so, create legal levers to hold decision makers accountable 
for failures to protect people. So that went on a little long, but there's a lot to talk about. <laughs> Can you delve into space law at all? What about outer space? Do these democratic processes still hold value for you? Yeah, I mean, we're not there yet. But I mean, I think, you know, if, if we trust like Elon, whatever, um, or even, you know, generally, like, I think one of the advantages of thinking about democracy outside the state, about creating democratic institutions that allow people from different countries to participate together in a combined decision-making process that's, that, you know, allows them to make their own decisions about institutions that span national boundaries is that scales up, right? And so that is something that we could use to help regulate outer space or, you know, regulate the bottom of the sea or regulate Antarctica, right? Um, it turns out that once you sort of expand your mind to the capacity of consciously creating institutions that allow people to exercise political autonomy and their own collective wisdom outside of states, that it you know, gives you the capacity for a lot of other potential changes in the world. How does the network Leviathan emphasize the role of citizen participation in digital democratic processes? Yeah, I mean, citizen participation is really the whole thing, right? And so let's back up a little bit. Because there's a theoretical basis for this. And I already talked about part of this, right? So part one of the idea is democratic knowledge, right? Is the idea that, you know, one of the major advantages of participatory governance, but especially, as I said, like thoughtfully, consciously designed participatory governance, not just like, you know, throw open a poll somewhere and say whatever gets the most votes wins. But participatory governance that brings people together in deliberative formats where they actually you know, sit down and talk to one another and are brought into interaction with people from other social groups in ways that balance, on the one hand, local self-determination, and on the other hand, input from diverse others. Right, that kind of consciously designed participatory structure, which is quite frankly modeled on democratic Athens, um, does uh, has the capacity to like radically improve decisions by allowing the sort of involvement and mixture of knowledge from a lot of different places. But there's a second theoretical framework, which is drawn from, you know, a lot of my own prior research and the research of others on the idea known as the rule of law, right? So the, the idea known as the rule of law, right, is sort of this, this normative value that essentially is about the constraint of power, particularly state power. And it turns out that basically the only way that you get the rule of law is by dispersing that power. 
In other words, the only way to take a top-level leader that maybe has mixed motivations, you know, call that leader Elon Musk or Mark Zuckerberg, and tell that person, okay, you know, you've got one motivation, which is making money, and you've got a second motivation, which is trying to not blow out the world. And sometimes those motivations align, you know, presumably if you own the platform known for facilitating genocide, you're not going to make a lot of money. But sometimes those motivations don't align. Like the only known way to force top-level leaders who are powerful to exercise that power consistent with the public interest and in a restrained way is to give everybody else some capacity to exercise control and sanction them. And so the second really big idea about citizen participation, or I'll say ordinary person participation, because one of the things that we have to do when we go global is we have to separate out the idea of democracy from the idea of citizenship. Um, but one of the, the, the other key idea is that we can actually better align company decisions with the public interest if we essentially give ordinary people the genuine power to exercise levers to say, hey, actually this decision that you're making because you're scared of Steve Bannon, um, that's not a decision that we're okay with. We're going to reverse that decision or we're going to change that decision or we're going to like disapprove of that decision and exercise some kind of authority to sanction you for making it. And so grassroots participation is really the whole thing, both to get those knowledge type of benefits and to get those rule of law type benefits into the governance process. Let's think about global cooperation and collaboration. Um, something that you mentioned before about borders. What about the development of democratic platforms transcending these national borders? Yeah, so my proposal, and again, you know, I don't claim to be Solon or, you know, I know like James Madison. And so, you know, I recognize that any proposal made by an academic is never going to be sort of suited for immediate implementation out of the world. Um, obviously, any actual institutions require a lot of negotiation between different interest groups, including states, companies, NGOs, and so forth. But at least as a first pass, what my proposal argues for is a collection of individual councils where, you know, they're selected essentially randomly. Um, each of them is dominated by members of an individual country. So, you know, I talked about the Thai example to address some of these questions involving the law about defaming the monarch. And even though they have, even though they're dominated by an individual country, they both include members from other countries. And there's a second and ultimately a third layer in the structure where there's a, a, the second layer is a kind of regional layer composed of representatives from the bottom level. And then the global layer is composed of representatives 
from the regional layer. And the idea of this multi-tiered sort of quasi-parliamentary system is that it's a balance between the local and the global, right? So, you know, on the local levels, you know, because a lot of the things, a lot of the decisions that are being made that are really impactful are still primarily impactful at the local level, right? Like decisions about what to do about hate speech involving a particular ethnic conflict in a particular country, those are primarily local decisions with primarily, but not exclusively, local impact. And so it's only right as a normative matter that local people should have primary responsibility for getting to make that decision. It's also only right as a practical matter that the local people who have the most knowledge and the best incentive to get it right would have the most authority over it. But we know that these decisions also reverberate across boundaries. We know, for example, that, you know, people are mobile. And so countries oftentimes, you know, will ask platforms to enforce their own law extraterritorially. You know, sometimes they, they ask people to enforce their law against diaspora communities. Sometimes, for example, you know, Germany, like, asks companies to block law um, content prohibiting um, in accordance with the law, prohibiting glorifying the Nazi party from like being seen in Germany from anywhere. Um, and, you know, obviously that makes sense. And so like uh, they, because these decisions cross national boundaries inherently and because oftentimes cross-national considerations as well as just global values are implicated in those decisions. Like the rest of the structure beyond the local dominance of my proposal of, of like local councils and my proposal is meant to ensure both that there's input, that while like locally predominant groups, are making decisions with particular impact locally. They hear from people from other countries with different knowledge and different value systems. And that ultimately, decisions crossing multiple countries can be made at higher levels of the structure where groups from individual countries are brought into communication and negotiation in order to resolve decisions that affect people in multiple countries. And so this is what I mean when I say that the idea, and again, you know, it's very much a model design. I definitely am under no illusions that, you know, somebody in the UN Security Council or whatever is going to read my book and say, well, quickly, let's get a treaty together to implement Gauda's system. Um, but, you know, as a model proposal, what it really does is it design, it's designed so that even though decisions are made in the first instance locally, there's always the sort of ferment of cross-cultural and sort of cross-national content context, both globalizing and improving those decisions. If a U.S. transhumanist party member approached you 
and wanted to learn more about the networked Leviathan, what key takeaways would you want them, a U.S. transhumanist political party member, to walk away with? Do we have a transhumanist political party? Interesting. Um, oh, wow. No, that, that, that's a fascinating question, right? I mean, I take it that, you know, one, one, way, to, one way to interpret that question is to sort of draw our frame toward, you know, there's a lot of folks near the kind of like long-termist movement out there thinking about not just like what are the sort of solutions to immediate harms, but also what are the solutions for essentially building a world that, you know, as humanity scientifically advances, will continue to be we are well-governed and in the interests of the whole world. Um, and I think that to that person, what I would say is institutions matter more than individual policies, right? If you, you know, and this, this is true regardless of what your future-oriented ambitions are, right? Whether you're, you know, a transhumanist who thinks that, like, we will end up either becoming or creating other kinds of species that have, you know, their own interests or other kinds of sentience, perhaps digital sentience, whether you're somebody who's thinking about expanding humanity to space or regulating space, as you asked earlier, you know, whether you're thinking even in a more mundane way about questions like regulating generative AI, it's more important, I think, to get the institutions that make the decisions right than it is to get the decisions right in the first place. And how do we get the institutions to make the decisions right? Well, the analytic frameworks that I start with in the book are pretty good ones, right? Like any institution that you want to make decisions about how like humanity or sentience in general governs itself in the future. Um, any institutions that you create for that, you're going to want them to be able to incorporate knowledge from everywhere, right? You're not going to want them to just like have an elite group of people or an elite group of entities and sort of make the decision on the basis of their knowledge. You want structures that can have like the random person sitting out on like the moon also involved in making the decision because they might know something that the center doesn't. And again, you're also going to want to avoid the pathologies of power. You're going to want, you know, there's, the humans are not angels and presumably whatever other kind of sentience we create, not necessarily going to be angels. Um, you know, centralized power is always subject to corruption. It's always subject to pressure from other sources of power. And so you're going to want an institutions that are robust to distorted incentives where they attempt to produce their individual good or the good of someone leading on them rather than the general good. And so the insights that I start with that lead me to this kind of disaggregated democracy from centuries, millennia of political theory about how we organize 
uh, govern against the Shushans to avoid these twin problems of ignorance and corrupted motivations are with us no matter what our ultimate composition of who the people are, who we're trying to govern turns out to be. Can you share a bit about your background and what led you to your current um, expertise? And also, does your work contribute to interdisciplinary perspectives? Yeah, no, good, great. This is really great. So as I said, I mean, there's really a bunch of stuff that led to this book in particular, right? Number one is I think I'm the only person who is both an academic political theorist and particularly an academic political theorist who has been working on these issues of institutional design, um, particularly as I you know, I have prior books, two prior books on the rule of law, which is fundamentally a, a, a process of, a, a, like a, a, an object of institutional design to structure power in ways that it is self-controlling by dispersed. Um, so I think I'm probably the only person who has both been inside one of these companies in a really significant way, like trying to help solve some of these governance problems in real time with like real visibility into the constraints they experience and has a research background in the kind of institutional design necessary to um, actually come up with these solutions. And so in a way, I mean, it sounds like I'm blowing my own horn here, but you know, the reason that I wrote this book in the first place was because it seemed like to me the prior literature was very much either one or the other, right? In other words, there were people who had like seen the inside of these companies saying one thing and people who were out academics who were, you know, sort of talking high theory or oftentimes being hypercritical, you know, sort of pretending like there's like no shared interests between the companies and ordinary people when there are a lot of shared interests, even if they're not all shared. Um, on the other hand, and so just this like capacity to bring together the academic and the practical is I think really the main sort of point of leverage from my background for getting this kind of work done. In what ways does your work take into account cultural and global perspectives? Yeah, so this is another big issue, right? Is So here's another moral problem with the way we're doing platform governance right now. It's like outright imperial, what do I mean by that? I mean, fundamentally, the final decision for all of this really socially and politically consequential stuff is being made primarily by a bunch of Americans in the San Francisco Bay Area. And frankly, that's just wrong, in addition to being a bad idea. And, you know, we know that it's wrong because it's taken many, many activists, many, many years to get even small improvements in the concrete decisions. You know, it took how long 
for example, you know, even, even within the U.S., like the lack of diversity in these companies is evident by the fact that it like took this taken forever to get accommodations for trans people who have different names in some of these companies, for example. Um, different cultural forms of expression have been censored. You know, there's a, a lot of record, for example, of like companies like removing topless like cultural activities from wildly different cultures like dances and so forth because oh well it's topless there's like female nudity that violates a weird american thing um and so there's this kind of quasi-colonial quasi-empirical aspect to how things are done right now and one of the really big advantages of my way of approaching platform governance is it also immediately allows for much greater respect for cultural diversity because it's designed so that it builds in a kind of autonomy through these localized, I sort of call them standing juries or councils, entities that can take control of decisions and can say, no, actually, you know, in our culture, we, these topless dances don't count as a kind of pornography. They're like an important part of our culture. And no, like we're making a rule for our geography and our culture that says those things don't get taken down. And so a big part of the motivation for this is to actually take into account cultural and geographic and social diversity. Are there ethical considerations that are particularly relevant to your area of expertise and how do you address them in the network Leviathan? So this is another big one for me. Um, you know, as I mentioned, my main point of leverage in terms of producing knowledge that I think is useful to the world is that I am an academic, you know, with a, a active research program in related areas who has also been inside one of the companies and actively gotten my hands dirty trying to help them implement and improve their policies. But this, of course, entails an immediate kind of conflict of interest in two ways, right? One way is actually, you know, I might be doing an injustice, certainly at least to the one company that I spent some time with, namely Meta, you know, what keeps me from inappropriately using confidential information that I learned there that I, you know, specifically signed an agreement not to disclose, on the other hand, of course, there's the risk of corruption, right? When I consulted with Meta, I did so for pay. You know, does the fact that I took money for one of the companies, something that, you know, is going to color the academic research that I do, making recommendations in part about how to regulate these companies. And so the, there's a real ethical concerns with doing any kind of this, you know, practically informed research that touches upon private entities as an academic. 
Um, and let me talk about a few ways that I tried to mitigate those concerns and which I also think serve as recommendations for anybody else in the field. Uh, the first, of course, is complete and total transparency. Um, if you look at the book at the very end of the introduction, I have an extended discussion that, you know, discloses, you know, all of my history, discloses what I've done to mitigate it. You know, the reason I put it at the end of the introduction is because I wanted it close to the front. I wanted it in the main body of the text. Right? Like so many people bury this sort of thing in footnotes or in appendices. You know, they sort of like hide away from possible conflicts of interest. But really, the worst thing to do is to hide away from a possible conflict of interest. You have to sort of lead with your chin about it in order to be fully honest with everybody who you're trying to make recommendations to. The second thing is to really try to build some walls again on both directions, right? So in the in the in the protecting confidential information interest, you know, you really have to build some walls by like what I did, you know, anytime I ever said anything specifically about Meta, I was sort of hyper, like even more than lawyers normally are careful about sourcing like every specific thing I said about the company to pre-existing published material. If oftentimes that meant, you know, a lot of the leakers that came out from that company, you know, I found myself like citing their material a lot. But yeah, that's okay, right? Like I didn't leak that material. Um, and so, you know, by only relying on publicly available material, to me, that seems sufficient to comply with my obligations to not, you know, create any more disclosures of confidential information. On the other side, I also drew a financial wall. So when I decided to write the book, I immediately stopped consulting for any company. You know, I, the last time I took any money from them was something like the beginning of 2019, end of, yeah, it would have been somewhere in 2019. Um, I didn't really start writing the book until 2020. Um, and so... Yeah, because it would have been mid-2019. But at any rate, like I, 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 you know, I said explicitly, like, I'm not going to take any more paid work, um, at least not until this book is over and out and published, because I didn't want to be receiving money and I didn't take any, like, corporate grants. I, you know, had a, a, a non-profit grant from the Knight Foundation, which is neutral in these matters that supported the book. But basically, no company money went into the book. Um, you might ask, well, what about future company money? To which I say, well, yes, that's a real risk. Like anybody writing something about corporate regulation can be influenced by the prospect of future revenue from those corporations. But that's something that's a risk no matter what your history is. And so it's not unique to me. Um, but by taking those two big measures, one, full and complete disclosure, and number two, creating these walls on both sides to prevent me either from like having the sort of immediate writing be corrupted by financial influence or 
be in at risk of disclosing non-public information that I don't have a right to disclose. Like, I think I did the best that I could to mitigate the ethical challenges that were inherent in this kind of work. And so I'd offer that as at least a series of starting point recommendations for future scholars who do this kind of work that crosses between academic and industry boundaries. You listened to an original podcast recording of the New Books Network and your host, Nathan Moore. Our audience can thank Dr. Paul Gowder for discussing his new book, The Network Leviathan for Democratic Platforms, out of Cambridge University Press. Subscribe to get more episodes from the New Books Network.